You're listening to a ComicsXF podcast. Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-hosts Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Brother Will, how are you tonight? Uh, I'm okay. Uh, I just thought about making random noises there. Uh, I settled for the... uh... In, in our pre-production meeting, we talked about getting energy up. I'm beat. I'm spent. I'm frustrated about work. I'm tired and grumpy. I want to eat my dinner and go to bed. But let's do a show instead. Question for you. Given the state of the world and the current events, and that yesterday the uh, House of Representatives decided that they didn't like Kevin McCarthy anymore. Outside of 9-11, what is the most bizarre world or national event that has happened in your lifetime? Because, as I was talking to my students about this today, this is the very first time, the very first time that a motion to vacate the chair has been successful in the House of Representatives. Only the second time a motion has been offered. So this is literally unprecedented in the history of the Republic. And we've been around for a long time. Oh, there are, are so many options, and all of them are horrible. Oh, of course. This is not like good news. Oh, hey, we, we passed universal basic income. Woo! Right. Healthcare for all. Woo! I mean, I think my concern is we are about around the corner from the next one because of a certain contingent of the uh, Republican caucus now calling for multiple indictee former President Donald Trump to be the new speaker. Well, see, that's not going to happen because that would be real work. And the man does not like work. Fair. Very fair. In that case, either the election of said nightmare goblin to the presidency. That was bad. That was real bad. And one that is is bad, but is in many ways a smaller thing, the Challenger disaster. Hmm. Because I was homesick the day the Challenger launched, so I was watching it live on TV when it happened at like oh, brother. the age of like five or six. Oh, boy. So it, it's just one of those things that stuck with me, despite it being on the, the grand scale of terrible things that have happened not the biggest but it's one that has a particular resonance because i witnessed it in a way yeah i was a little too uh young for challenger but i do remember watching news coverage of columbia Mm, yes that was that was high school uh not too long after 9-11 and i remember in being in the dorm and watching those news reports come in I have a distinct memory of that happening while I was at work and all of us, you know, it was a day when we didn't have a show, but the box office was open because we had a show coming up. So we were there to sell tickets and just, it was slow. So we were just all sort of checking the, the news regularly. And I think it was, would have been early enough 
in the the internet as the font of news. Even 9-11, I think we were all watching TV. Mm-hmm. But Columbia, I remember it being a thing you were looking at on the internet. Not on your phone yet, though. No, no, it was desktops. It was, I think we only had one or two computers that had internet access in the box office. Everything else was uh, an intranet. So it was all of a sort of huddled around the one computer looking at it. I will also say on an actually a more positive note, I remember the uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Oh, wow. Because I would have been nine, eight or nine at that point. So I, it's not a, a hugely strong recollection, but I do have remember being at my grandparents and them watching the news as the, the wall came down. I have sketchy recollections of the Gulf War. That's about as early as as it goes for me. There's other bits and pieces, things that I remember as bizarre. Like my high school freshman or sophomore math class stopping to listen to the O.J. Simpson verdict be delivered. Oh, my God. I was I was in fourth grade for that. Again, it's such a little thing. It, it means nothing in the grand scheme of the world, even in the grand scheme of the Republic. But it was this sort of zeitgeist moment. To you, what is the weirdest that you view as remembering? I mean, it's outside of 9-11, right? Outside, well, of like right. The, outside of the national tragedy genre. I mean, it has to be Trump, right? It has to be the election of someone wholly unfit and unqualified to be the president of the United States. Yeah. And he is now currently the presumptive nominee. Uh, if you're listening to this and you're an international listener, and I'm sure we have a handful. The United States is uh, it's a basket case. It's... Uh, is uh, 300 million people loosely associated with, I don't know what, governed by a bunch of racists and morons and moron racists. Brexit was also bizarre. Yeah. And that's bizarre. I mean, there are things that even a year and a half ago now, Russia invading Ukraine, while, you know, something that was terrible, it felt almost inevitable. Brexit did not feel inevitable. Trump's election did not feel inevitable. But as Star Trek tells us, we'll have Irish reunification next year. So that's something to look forward to. And, and then we'll, the UK will become its own thing. And then they'll start sending weird Scottish ghost lanterns out into space to seduce women. No, Bev, <laughs> Bev, Bev, Bev. On that note, you ready to do a show, man? Yeah, there's not a great segue, but we are heading back, back taking the, the way back machine tonight to the swinging 60s. We got three more team ups of the bright night, Batman 66. White night. At least now we can we can bring the energy up with these. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we started out in a little bit of a down note, and now we're going to bring that energy up. The first story of the night is Batman 66 meets the Green Hornet. This is Batman 66 meets the Green Hornet, numbers one to six. The writers are Kevin Smith and Ralph Garman, with art by Ty Templeton, colors by Tony Avenia, letters by Wes Abbott, and edited by Jim Chadwick and Anis Ansari. 
The cover dates are August of 2014 to January of 2015. General Gum and the Joker have teamed up to steal their respective cities blind, and only two teams of heroes can stop them. The dynamic duo of Batman and Robin and the Green Hornet and his sidekick, Kato. Leave it to Kevin Smith to do a direct follow-up from a 66 episode. Yeah, and not not a bad one, but not one of the most well-remembered. It's one of those episodes that is it's significant because of the team up but it's not i don't think it's in anybody's top 10 batman 66 two-parters uh so that's 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 my first note here my second note is good job to kevin smith for not doing anything weird he understood the assignment didn't fuck it up uh didn't like just didn't didn't do anything off-putting and third the alex ross covers are fantastic but I think he didn't get a note somewhere because General Gum has a pink face on all of the Alex Ross covers and on the interiors, he's got the white glue face. And I will say when not remembering this terribly well and getting to the beginning and then seeing Gum all covered in the glue, I was expecting Kevin Smith to work in some subtle jokes about him being all gross and gooey and something Kevin Smithy in there. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. And I was like, no, okay, great. Absolutely wholesome. Wholesome as fuck. So as we did the last time we did one of these, I'm going to start off with asking you the question, how familiar were you with the Green Hornet? Ha <laughs> All I know about the Green Hornet, I learned from a Mythbusters episode that cross-promoted Seth Rogen's Green Hornet movie. So that's to say, I know almost nothing about Green Hornet. <laughs> but I, I quickly figured out, uh, apparently they have a bit where they don't give the name of the city out because that happened early and often enough in this story that's like, okay, it's a, it's a Springfield bit. Gotcha. And uh, apparently their gimmick is they are known to the world as criminals, but they are secretly crime fighters. Yeah, that's pretty much the bit. It started out as a radio show, old-time radio serials, and then became movies. And the TV show came about attempting to capitalize on Batman, but it didn't quite make it. Now, that Seth Rogen film, I believe Smith was involved in the writing of it. Or, no, he was not. He was involved in an animated series, or is in talks to do an animated series. He is a noted fan of the Green Hornet. So that's probably why he was like, hey guys, come on, let's let's do some, some Green Hornet comics. You know, it's, there's a chance that the, the stink of that movie from a few years ago might be off it now. And Dynamite has the license and has been doing Green Hornet comics for a while. So come on, cross over. Makes sense. Dynamite does not seem to be much of an ongoing concern at the moment. It's picking up a little since it picked up a bunch of the Disney licenses. It's doing a series of Disney villains miniseries. It's doing Darkwing Duck and it's doing Gargoyles. But aside from that, Dynamite has my favorite section in previews the catalog of upcoming comics because they release 
about 12 comics a month and they're section 35 in... different alternate covers exactly their, their section in previews is like 50 pages because it's all of these covers you can't look through it unless you're one of those people that's looking to pick out the covers you just look at the first page that has the list and like okay you anything new gargoyles or darkwing duck this month Yes, no, okay, moving on. I, I, I guess they're still doing the, the James Bond comics. Yeah, they've got that. They've got Vampirella. They have well, a... of course, that's where their, their 50 alternate covers come from. Right. Red Sonia. They love their covers. They're a New Jersey company. Dynamite is headquartered out of here in Jersey. I think I knew that. I mean, they've lost a lot of those licenses, but those Disney licenses, they're handy to have. Of course, why would Disney print its own books? Between Dynamite printing that stuff, Dark Horse printing Star Wars kids comics. Yeah, it makes zero sense to me. Don't understand this business. Do not understand it at all. I don't understand why DC might, you know, cancel a series that's not performing to expectations. Like these print comics, none of them sell. Not a single one of them sell. Like what does it matter to DC whether... A series sells 10,000 books or 2,000 books in the grand scheme of Warner Brothers Discovery. I just I can't fathom it. But Batman 66 meets the Green Hornet. So we've got General Gum, who was Colonel Gum in that original Batman 66 two-parter. He got himself a promotion after he covered himself in glue. So we've got we've got these two villains. We've got Batman and Robin and the Green Hornet and Kato. And it was established in that original two-parter that Batman knows or Bruce Wayne knows Britt Reed, the Green Hornet's alter ego. I love how adversarial Robin and Kato are throughout this entire thing. Batman and Green Hornet seem to be able to sort of put aside their issues to have to work together, but Robin and Kato just cannot get along. Well, too, yeah, the Green Hornet knows that he's actually not a bad guy, so he knows that, yeah, I need to find some kind of way to coexist with Batman, and even as Batman has maybe other priorities, so you can kind of understand why they would get along, even if Batman has to draw, you know, some kind of lines. But yeah, the the Kato Robin dynamic is fun, especially when they're thrown together in the pit, and uh, afterwards, like, oh, I could I could have taken you, I could have taken you. You want to go again? That was uh, real fun. Not a pit, it's a cage, a cage hanging over a tank holding Mister Giggles, who is a dum, shark. Dum 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 shark watch. Yes, indeed, we got a we got a shark watch in here. We- Feels like something Kevin Smith would want to do. I'm surprised we did not see any bat repellent shark spray. Nah, Mr. Shark Giggles. repellent bat spray. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that versus the last batch of these we did, I'm surprised. 17 that... years ago. Yeah. I'm surprised that we didn't see Batgirl in this one. I fi- I would have figured Smith would have tried to work Batgirl somehow into here, but I don't think she would have had a place in the story necessarily. Yeah, and I think in a weird way, she kind of would have been like a third wheel, right? Because you don't have that direct counterpart. Uh, the Hornet has some, I don't know, female assistant. I, I Rit Reed's drawing... assistant. Yeah. But she's not really that in the Green Hornet world. Credit to Smith. 
This absolutely has one of the most 66 sequences of any 66 comic ever. At the end of issue five into issue six or somewhere in the, towards the end of the series, there is a death trap that is a <laughs> perfect 66 death trap. The pasta press with Batman and Robin tied to the base as the giant pasta press is about to fall down and crush them. And the way they get out of it using a giant bottle of balsamic vinaigrette to soften the marble that they're glued to, to get out that way. That whole sequence is so absolutely pitch perfect 66. No, absolutely. And they, they get back to the cave Alfred's like, uh, I don't know if I can save these. You know, it's just the comedy is good. The overall tone is good. Like Smith, he treats the assignment seriously. Like this is really restrained on his part. I'm so proud of him. And I think more than the other writers tonight, or even Jeff Parker, who wrote the main Batman 66 book, or some of the other ones we've seen, I feel like Smith really was writing this in his head as if he were writing a 66 episode or a series mm-hmm. of episodes because he hit all of the little beats of a 66 with the death trap, with the bat climb and the celebrity sticking their head out the window. In this case, Tricky Dick. <laughs> I'm bringing law and order back to the country the twists, the way the villains interacted with each other, it all feels so spot on to the tone of this show. Up to and including some of like just the little things that are the ridiculous moments of a Batman 66 that are so camp and so eye-rolly, but played so straight. The fact that all of the artifacts that the Joker and General Gum are stealing belong to an archaeologist named Franco Bolo. And only about two-thirds of the way through do Batman and the Green Hornet realize that, wait, that name, when you run it together, Franco Bolo, that's the Italian for postage stamp, which is Gum's obsession. That is one of those bits from 66 where the coincidence of it and the really of it is spot on and right there. And the fact that in the end, when it turns out, oh, gum has been Bolo all along, you're initially like, oh, well, of course. And I was like, oh, wait, no, there really is a Franco Bolo. He's just not here. He's been on expedition this whole time. There are a couple of bits that I think are a little more aware than what you'd get on 66 often. The bit where... Green Hornet knocks out Batman and Robin with his Green Hornet gas. And later, once they've teamed up, Batman bat gasses Green Hornet to get him into the bat cave. And Hornet's like, oh, I guess we're even now. And then in the end, when they're leaving the cave, Hornet's like, well, I guess I'm not going to see the way out. No, you're not. Batman gasses him again. Now we're even. I don't think that's a line I necessarily hear coming from Adam West's Batman. It's a little too smart ass. Yours has an unpleasant aftertaste. Yes. 
but I think those little things still aren't so outside the realm of 66 that they throw me off. Yeah, he he could get a little feisty when he needed to. Like, right, we're going to talk about Miss Kitka tonight, but you remember in the, in the movie when he thinks that Miss Kitka's been harmed? The Batman of that movie is just a tad bit darker than he is in the series. You never see him go into that rage like he does with the Miss Kitka bit in the movie. Or you rarely have ever seen him that emotionally affected by anything as he is emotionally affected by the betrayal of sorts of Miss Kitka in the end. The art here, it's gorgeous. Ty Templeton knocks this one out of the park. Uh, He sure does. Okay, so if you're going to do a 66 comic and you can't get the all reds, Templeton, absolutely right up there. Anybody else, you're going to need to ask uh, permission. We've got some art tonight that I don't think quite works. But Templeton is spectacular. And it is it is so good, uh, right? And like the half issue where uh, he was busy or behind or whatever, it's a noticeable drop off. This is the strongest art of the night. Oh, yes. And is up there. I'm trying to think. The I mean, the Alreds did tremendous work. I'm trying to think who uh, I really liked Jeremy Hahn who did the Wonder Woman miniseries. Yeah, that was another one that was really really nice. But it feels like Templeton really went out of his way to research the look of the show of both shows and getting the likenesses spot on for all the characters. Except though, O'Hara is a little broader, but it's Chief O'Hara. I'm okay with him being a little bit broader. Because, boy, that character is the most delightfully broad character in that whole series. Uh, do you ever remember him taking his hat off in the show? I think only that, again, that one episode where the Penguin becomes the mayor and he fires Gordon and O'Hara. I think we see O'Hara out of uniform in that episode. Does he take his hat off in the one where the Joker surfs and they all go to the beach? I don't know, but I was trying to remember if I had canonically seen him as bald or balding. I feel like we did at one point or another. Like, I mean, sure, there's one moment where he takes his hat and like puts it on his heart for Batman when they think the Cape Crusader <laughs> might have died. But yeah, this is charming. Absolutely. Maybe Ralph Garman was a guiding hand with Kevin Smith here. Moderating or- influence. Or who knows, maybe this was a Smith plot with Garmin scripts that helps keep Smith's proclivity for wiseassery and potty humor in control. But however it worked, it worked really well. But yeah, the weird color thing aside, the Alex Ross covers, of course, are spectacular. I'm trying to remember, I, I think maybe Smith wrote the Green Hornet comics. Yes, he wrote the Green Hornet comics at Dynamite. That's how this all came about. Because he it's wrote... interesting that you don't have a Green Hornet villain in this. I don't think the Green Hornet really had a rogues gallery. It was just gangsters. Ah. I don't recall the Green Hornet having recurring nemeses. I'm not hugely familiar with the Green Hornet. I've heard some of the radio shows. I've seen some of the TV series. 
but I don't remember there being a ton of recurring enemies. You got anything else? I think I'm good. Oh, that means it's time to play Batman 66 meets the Green Hornet for the second time on the big board. We are at 318 stories on the big board. God damn. Number one is the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. Number 50 is Savage Innocence, where the Joker gets the power of the Spectre. Coming in at a sexy 69, it's Batman 588 to 590, closed before striking. At 100 is My Own Worst Enemy, the first arc of Scott Snyder's All-Star Batman. At 150, we've got the first appearance of Jason Todd and Killer Croc. 200 is Riddler in the Dark, the Charles Soule Riddler story. 250 is Bouncing Baby Boy, the Batman Plastic Man team up from JLA. And hey, all the way down to 318, Curse of the White Knight. Boo. Wait, it's almost Halloween, or it's after Halloween for you if you're a listener, but scary boo. Boo. <laughs> Gonna do the boo until it's Halloween for us. Looking at the earlier team ups, the highest is Batman 66 meets Wonder Woman 77. That's up at 121. I feel like there's a significance to that and a weight to it. It does have that one weird problematic bit that we don't like where in the future Batman 66 beat the Joker to death with his bare hands. Um, Yeah, that's not so good. That's bad. That's real bad. But it introduces Ra's al Ghul and Talia 66. If you were able to remove that and just have had some other way the Joker died that Batman blamed himself for, the arc, the character arcs there are strong. They found a good way to weave the two shows together and the different time periods they existed in. And it's it also has really nice art. You know, just looking at the list, the first three are fairly close together. We got, uh, as you said, 66 meets Wonder Woman 77 at 121. Then we've got uh, meets the man from Uncle at 129. And then meets the Legion of Superheroes at 144. So we we don't have a widespread here. Uh, although I got to say, uh, I was not real thrilled uh, or impressed with, with some of the art in one of our stories tonight. And I think it's going to be a little bit lower than these three. But I I think we could safely fit meets the Green Hornet somewhere between meets Wonder Woman 77 and meets the man from Uncle and still have room to get in. Uh, in that same territory, uh, one of our stories tonight. Because I, I think we've got two that are about the same quality, and then one is that is significantly uh, below that. All right. I can agree with that. With Yeah, that this is not quite as good as Wonder Woman, but I like it more than Man from Uncle. How about we push Killing Joke down one more spot and drop this right above Killing Joke? Always happy to put stuff above Killing Joke. Then it's the new 126. Because I think the issue above that, the Harley 25, is is significant. And I enjoy watching Harley beat the snot out of the Joker. Fuck him. 
Our next story is Batman 66 meets Steed and Peel. This is another six-issue miniseries. The writer is Ian Edgington with art by Matthew Dow Smith. Colors by Jordi Belair, Wendy Broom, and Carrie Strahan. Letters by Wes Abbott. Edited by Christy Quinn, Jessica Chen, and Chris Rosa. With cover dates of September of 2016 through February of 2017. Cybernauts have invaded Gotham on a quest to steal diamonds for a sinister purpose. Batman and Robin must team up with the British Avengers, John Steed and Mrs. Peel, to find out what these rogue robots are planning. Well, first of all, we can't call them the Avengers because we might get in trouble if we do that. This should be a crime. It should be illegal to do a Batman 66 comic book and then color it like dirty dishwater. This thing is so drab, so glum, so depressing, so devoid of detail. Like this thing has been sapped of so much life. Like you can't do the fun background gags, right? You can't do any of the label gags in this series because the detail is just not there. This is a bummer to look at. And I like Smith's art in general. I've enjoyed his work on a lot of different things. This is a very British creative team, by the way. This is written by a Brit and drawn by a Brit. Wait, no, I'm wrong. I'm familiar with Smith's work working with British writers, but he's apparently American. Huh, learn something new every day. One of those things where the minute I said it, I'm like, wait, I should probably double check that. And I was wrong. You just, you had a feeling that he was British. You wanted him to be British. I've seen him draw Doctor Who comics. My assumption is if you're working on Doctor Who comics, you're a Brit. And Edgington is most assuredly a Brit. Well, I mean, Edgington, that's kind of right there. We've read Edgington before. He wrote Bread and Circuses, the third arc of No Man's Land. But I agree. I think the colors here bring this down a notch. And Smith's style is not hyper detailed. No. It's broader, it's chunkier than what we're used to in 66 comics. Okay. How familiar are you with Steven Peel, the Avengers? Oh, not at all. I've got a fun story about how my first bit of familiarity with this concept. Okay. I doubt you remember, because very few people do, that. In the late 90s, they attempted to do the Avengers movie, a modern reboot. Oh, with... shit. That, didn't it have um, uh, Ray Fiennes? Ray Fiennes and Uma Thurman as Steed and Peel, and Sean Connery as the villain. It is terrible. Oh, I bet it was. Not a lot of uh, late career Connery is good. Now, once you get past The uh, Rock. This... Oh, yeah. I was just, Rock, Rock is after Last Crusade. Yes. But one time I was taking a train down to North Carolina from New York. And it was a train that had you know, TV screens in the, the, the cars. And the thing was, it wasn't like it was headsets. Like the TV was playing the entire time and you could hear it. Oh, no. Yeah. You had, you had this movie forced on you? This and Holy Man, an Eddie Murphy comedy... With episodes Aww. of Family Matters and Step by Step in between Aww. on the way down. And Aww. on the way back, it was the animated film Ants 
not a bug's life, but ants, the one with Woody uh, Allen. Uh. And Simon Birch, the very loose adaptation of A Prayer for Owen Meany, with similar sitcoms in between. Uh. I saw them each twice the train ride was so long. Oh, <laughs> man, that's terrible. I was reading Tales of the Demon, so I did my best to just fall into Batman fighting Rachel Ghoul and ignoring everything going on on that television screen. I, I can't believe like the that was literally like forced on you. 1999 no. or 2000 Amtrak. It was a thing. No, no headsets, no nothing. Like you, they wouldn't have done that on a plane. That's so weird. Yeah, it was something. I have very little familiarity with the traditional, original British Steeden Peel, the original Avengers. I know a little bit from Osmosis. I know some stuff because of how heavily influenced a particular X-Men story was by a particular Avengers story because Chris Claremont is a freak. And <laughs> there is a, a whole arc where Mrs. Peel goes undercover and is all like leathered up. And that inspired the Hellfire Club sequences in the Dark Phoenix saga. I knew reading this that there had to be a specific significance to something. And I wasn't sure if it was just a Batman reference or if it was a double reference. And it is, in fact, a double reference. Oh. Our main villain is the head of a British company, and she's named Michaela Goff. Now, first, do you get the Batman reference there? Michaela Goff. Mm-hmm. No. Michael Goff played Alfred in the ah. Burton and Schumacher movies. Michael Goff also played Professor Armstrong, the creator of the Cybernauts in the Avengers. Oh, that's that's a that's a little pretzel turducken twist there. For whatever else is going on, Edgington knows how to make a reference. And knows how to keep it subtle and fun. There's a bit here where Robin actually says, holy rusted metal Batman. Which, if you're familiar with Batman Forever, that's a line from Batman Forever. As Batman and Robin are getting onto the, I think it's the island where Two-Face and Riddler have their base. Robin goes, holy rusted metal. And that's like, what? He's like, no, there's this rusted metal that we're stepping on. It's got holes in it. So it, again, it's this turducken of a reference. It's not just a normal 66, holy whatever, but it's referencing Batman forever. So I think most of the story is average. It's perfectly fine. The, the twists at the end were kind of fun. The one story beat that left me as absolutely befuddled is... Said uh, Michaela Goff has used her uh, Cybertrons. Cybernauts. 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 Cybertron, something else. She has, you know, placed this homing device on uh, Steed. He has found his way to the Batcave. She sends the Cybernauts into the Batcave. Well and fine and good. I think, again... It should be against the law to write a Batman comic for you to have your villain discover the presence of the Batcave and then not automatically deduce, oh shit, Bruce Wayne is Batman. Oh, the Batcave is directly under Wayne Manor? Huh, I guess that means Bruce Wayne is Batman. I don't disagree. 
I think you can hand wave that away by she's not a native of Gotham. So if they were following the trail that Steed went through, she might not necessarily know what is above the cave. Mm -hmm. That's the only way I can hand wave that away. Also, we've already had Mrs. Peel deduce Bruce's identity. Having somebody else do it in the same story might be a bit much, especially in the world of 66 where nobody ever deduces Bruce Wayne's identity. But uh, yeah, Miss Peel could just figure out, oh, the way that you looked at her. I think there's a lot of very clever wordplay in this. Those references, there's a line where Batman says something about, of course, this plane doesn't have guns. I don't believe in firearms, which strikes me as a strike shot across the bow at the Batwing and the Burton movies with their Gatling guns. Yeah. That, and at one point, Goff is addressed as a mini-skirted Machiavelli, which is, again, spot-on 66 just language. And Goff is teaming up with Lord Fogg, who was the villain from the season three episode where Batman goes to Londinium, because for some reason they couldn't call it London? I don't know. It's, it's more fun when you call it Londinium. And uh, Mr. Freeze. And I meant to research and I did not which version of Mr. Freeze, because there were three different actors who played Freeze. That doesn't get the same press that the, the three Catwomen got, but there are a similar multiple Mr. Freezes over the course of the series. I know it's not Eli Wallach. I'm not sure which of the other two Mr. Freezes it was. Uh, I do want to say, and go back to the art in uh, Meet Screen Hornet briefly. If you're going to do Joker, if you're going to do 66 Joker, and you're going to point out the fact that Cesar Romero did not save the mustache, it has to be more than just some faint like whiskers that have been painted over. Like You need to do the full, oh, this guy just put clown paint over his full-ass mustache which we will see in our next story. This is also, I believe, and I would have to go back and reread all of 66, which we will happily do over the course of this podcast. We've only done one other 66 story. We haven't done the main 66 series yet. No, we got plenty of material to go through. This is, I believe, the first and only appearance of Matches Malone 66. Ugh. This is not even a good Matches Malone. Like, it's just Bruce Wayne with a uh, matchstick in his mouth. And the mustache. Can't forget <laughs> the mustache. And Dick Grayson has a mustache. That was a bit, I was like, couldn't have dyed his hair. He, he, he now, and he's got the same mustache. It's like, wait, you couldn't have at least made a joke about a spotty teenage facial hair joke in there? But there's uh, there's no obnoxious sports coat. There's no really anything else. There's no real characterization for matches. They're just, he's just flying under an assumed identity. Kind of underwhelming. Yeah. If you're going to give me matches, give me the full matches. Yeah, but I'm glad to see that if they were going to do that, if Edgington was going to have them have to fly under an assumed name, at least he went with matches Malone and didn't, something that wasn't because it, at least it makes sense at least it's an established bit wayne bruce ah, yes i'm wayne wayne bruce and, and this is a 
I know a reference or something that is going to go over your head because it's not your thing. But I would be very curious to go back and again, didn't have the time because also this one doesn't particularly matter. But I would love to know whether the Cybernauts episodes of the Avengers came before or after the Cybermen stories in Doctor Who, because they're seemingly pretty similar concepts. Yeah. The twist, the maybe not final twist, but the penultimate twist must have felt more like an Avengers twist than a 66 twist because the revelation that there's this sort of incomplete AI version of Professor Armstrong who built the Cybernauts and is sort of tragically trapped as this half-complete blind AI is a bit bleak for 66. Yeah. I mean, if it got really deep into, you know, Mr. Freeze, maybe you could get that bleak. Certainly, you know, the lost episode gets a little dark. But even Freeze wasn't that bleak back here. Freeze doesn't... If you could, if you got into Freeze, right? So a bit more deeply than the series ever did. But Freeze didn't even become that deep a character until Batman the Animated Series. Before that, Freeze's origin was... He was a criminal scientist who accidentally got exposed to chemicals and now can't survive outside of sub-zero temperatures. There was no pathos in Mr. Freeze before Batman the Animated Series. Maybe they could have come up with something. They could have. Anything's possible. Yeah, but I somehow don't see the series that, again, has Batman defeat the Joker in a surfing contest. What was ever going to create something or where Batman never actually talks about the death of his parents, but simply says, you know, his parents had a tragic interaction with crime. You can't even say that his parents were killed. They crimed all over themselves. There is a a reference to the Avengers penchant for BDSM in here as well, where Mrs. Peel seems, oh, you're going to blindfold me, are you? Yeah, that was uh, a little titillating. Yes, which is, again, all from that Hellfire Club thing where she's flat-out dominatrix dolled up. Again, something you would not see in Batman 66. I choose to believe that that urban legend is true. Which urban legend? Oh, that Adam West and Frank... Oh, yes. uh, Yeah. What's the last name? Burt Ward? No, 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 no. no. It It wasn't Burt Ward. Uh... Of Frank uh, the Riddler. Frank. Oh, Gorshin. Yeah, yeah. That Adam West and Frank Gorshin got kicked out of an orgy because they refused to take off their costumes. Yes, yes. That urban legend, most assuredly. But again, I'm I, I will go with that. I will absolutely believe that that was something that happened, and I kind of love it. I choose to believe that it's true. And I feel like they were smart in this story to not lean too heavily into the Avengers stuff because I have a feeling like with the Green Hornet there was at least a possibility that people would know it and I know when we read the man from Uncle One there was a bit of both of us sort of scratching our heads at some of the more heavy man from Uncle references while here it's like okay they're British spies there you go they didn't go too deeply into the world they call their boss mother that's the only other thing that we picked up from this. And we you didn't need to know anything else. 
the thing with the cybernauts was explained in a nice three panel flashback. So it all made sense. Yeah, this does not leave you struggling with any plot points. You know, it has a couple of weird beats in it, but, you know, other than that. Oh, and I forgot to mention it with the Green Hornet one, and I'm going to mention it here because it's true for both of these. When you realize that these were digital first, you can always see it. Mm -hmm. The half pages put together. And I understand, I guess, why they did that. But boy, I would have, especially Templeton, I would have loved for him to have had a little more artistic freedom to do some nice splash pages or something where both of these stories are those two half pages put together because they're it's done almost like a, a strip rather than a traditional comic book page. And, you know, they were released as these chapters instead of full issues. And... I guess DC felt that people would not pay, what was it, a dollar or two dollars for eight pages of story? I think it was a dollar ninety nine. I think that sounds about right. Uh, so that maybe they would pay a dollar ninety nine for you know sixteen half pages. But yeah, it we've talked about this in the column too, when um Batman and Scooby Doo same format it is absolutely limiting as to what you can do in terms of the layout i'm glad that the last series of bat scoob was done for comics and that the new ongoing will be as well so you can let those artists have a little more fun with their page layouts until dc once again decides to try digital first stuff oh there was one bit in here that Not quite as 66 as the giant pasta press, but them being attacked by Africanized bees and Mrs. Peel realizing, oh, right, bees communicate through dance. And she starts like shimmying to get the bees to move away from them so Batman can open a door and they can escape. That only works in 66 of any Batman interpretation. And uh, Batman turning the uh, atomic pile into an EMP. That was pretty cool. Yes. And the bat anti-steel rust spray. Anti-oil. Ah, yes. Yes, anti-oil spray. Holy rusted metal. That's, again, very 66. The fact that, oh yeah, I conveniently have the anti-oil spray. Anyone who gives the Grant Morrison era Batman, especially the Justice League era Batman shit, for having all of these crazy contraptions That's just Morrison riffing on 66. I give them a pass on that one. It's fun. It's like, look, we we don't read Batman comics to see Batman fail, right? He he can fail. That's okay. We can have serious moments and serious pieces, but we want to see Batman be smart. Why do men fall down, Master Bruce? So they can learn to pick themselves back up. He has to fall down to pick himself back up, but Batman always winds up picking himself back up. And, oh, we do get Catwoman in the first couple issues here and it's distinctly the julie newmar catwoman which is different from the catwoman we'll get in our last story Uh, one of these books that we did right just had the the catwoman just randomly change not random the wonder woman one since it was set in three different locales it was one catwoman at the beginning when they were in gotham a different Catwoman when they went to Paradise Island, and the third Catwoman when it flashed forward to 77. I think it was 
Numar in Gotham, Merriweather on Themyscira, and Eartha Kit when we moved forward to 77. No explanation. No explanation. No. I'm pretty sure in the the main 66 series, it also just jumps Catwoman's, not within a story, but throughout the series, sometimes it's Julie Newmar and sometimes it's Eartha Kitt, and there is no explanation as to there being multiple Catwomen as ever. We never get the John Aston Riddler, though. Shame. Yeah. I love John Aston. Gomez Adams, Harry's dad on Night Court. There's I'm a all reason- better now. Yes. But there's a reason why they brought Frank Gorshin back after that. It's not that John Aston did a bad job. It's that Frank Gorshin's portrayal of that character is iconic. I think we've said it before when we've talked about this show. As much as the Joker is my favorite Batman villain, Gorshin's Riddler is the best villain on 66. Just that manic energy and his physical movements, just the way he just seems to be made of silly putty. The way he's able to control his body and his voice and his facial expressions. Like, he's a master at his craft. Burgess Meredith's Penguin is brilliant. I love Julie Newmar's Catwoman. Eartha Kitt's Catwoman is, I think, my favorite of the three. And Romero's Joker is fun. But while Romero is never phoning it in, Romero is the one who I feel like is the least invested in the character compared to the other principal bat rogues on that show. Hence the mustache. Yes. That's a sign that this guy is kind of like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll have to deal with getting all of that grease paint out of my mustache, but I'm not going any further in that. No, we're keeping the mustache. Oh, and I will also give Edgington the credit that he went out of his way to work this into continuity with the main series because there's a reference to the last time Batman was in London with the Mad Hatter and that was issue four of the main series oh because we know since Jeff Parker who wrote the main series also wrote Wonder Woman and uh, Man from Uncle that was much more tied in with that series But here, Edgington does go out of his way to at least address the wider world of 66. Which which DC has sadly neglected. I don't feel like Smith tried to tie into the 66 expanded universe. And our last story of the night, if this is Earth 66, the next one is like 66A. Like it's just adjacent (laughs) to that universe, but not quite quite the same universe but i think we should wrap this one up and get on to talking about that one i believe so that means it's time for batman 66 meets state and mrs pale not the avengers but still the avengers on the big board all right so we're gonna put it below legion of superheroes because that at least has that stunning alred's art yeah i i think 89 at 160 is probably better and kind of suffers from the same thing. Like visually, this is not what it should be. Yeah. But I don't know that I'd put it much below that. All right. This is again, not a bad book. I think a handful of spots. I'm thinking maybe 166. Cause I mean that those next few spots, 
I, I mean, if we're, we're talking just, I mean, art, I mean, Secret of the Waiting Graves, Neil Adams, Scottish Connection is Frank Quitely. You've got another UK book right there with Scottish Connection. And I would sooner reread Scottish Connection with its weird Azrael, Knights Templar stuff. I mean, Underworld Unleashed below that, because of all the other stuff lumped in with it, is kind of inconsistent. So I think I, I'm saying 166. All right. I like it. Our final story of the night is Archie meets Batman 66. Another six issue miniseries written by Jeff Parker and Michael Morrissey, penciled by Dan Parent, inked by Jay Bone, colors by Kelly Fitzpatrick, letters by Jack Morelli, and edited by Alex Segura and Stephen Oswald. Cover dates are September of 2018 to March of 2019. The United Underworld has moved to Riverdale to set up their next scheme for world domination. Batman, Robin, and Batgirl are joined by Archie and the gang to save their parents and the world from the clutches of these villains. What's your familiarity with Archie, Will? Less than one episode of Mythbusters covering something about Archie. Like, no, I'm able to like pick out some of the character names. Like, oh, that's, uh, that's Jughead. Yeah, Jughead. And that's uh, Archie. Oh, okay. Uh, that's that's it. That's all I got. You got your your general pop culture, Archie, Jughead, Betty Veronica sort of thing. Which... Not even that. Oh, okay. So you Archie, Jughead. Yeah, that's it. That's all we got. Okay. You don't need to know much more than that. What What else you need to know is pretty much explained here. And this is even by 66 standards broad. And that comes from the archiness of it. This one, if you couldn't tell, as we discussed when we did some intercompany crossovers, when Tony Thornley was on the show, you can friend always of te- the show, friend of the show, you can always tell which company's publishing it by whose name comes first. And this is Archie meets Batman 66. So this is an Archie comic that is guest starring Batman 66 versus the other ones that we've done, which are Batman 66 comics guest starring the other characters. And while Parker of Batman 66 is co-writing this, the rest of the creative team is an Archie creative team. The art is Archie. The editors are Archie. I believe Michael Morrissey was doing a good amount of Archie work at the time. So this has the feel of an Archie comic. Random thought I just had. We're never again going to have Batman fighting aliens or predators. No, not unless the blob that is Disney eventually encompasses Warner Discovery too. It could happen. Oh, I'm not saying it couldn't. This serves as an almost direct sequel to the Batman movie. But then also ties in the the comics Poison Ivy characterization of yep. this, this Southern Belle that Which, I like. Yeah, I, I want to go back and I want to reread the Poison Ivy issues of 66 to see if there was ever an explanation as to why she was Southern or if it's just like, yeah, let's, let's give her a Southern accent because why not? Why the hell not? There are definite moments that tie this into the comic this and i'm not sure if they learn this i don't believe in the 66 comic 
Dick and Bruce learn that Barbara is Batgirl and vice versa. But here they know. Alfred knows. Yes, Alfred knows. But here it's clear that they all know because when Dick and Barbara go undercover in Riverdale High, they go undercover as Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon, which is more than anything else why I think this is Earth-66A, because that is completely out of sync with the continuity of 66. But we get pretty deep into both the rogues gallery and the Archie gang, because it's not just the United Underworld. You got Bookworm, you get Siren, you got a reference to Egghead. So we were throwing a lot of characters into the mix here. Footnote. God, I love wacky villain hench people nicknames from 66. 66 villains, they committed to a bit. They did. They had a gimmick. And it's not just Archie, Jughead, Betty, Veronica, and Reggie. We get Dilton and Chuck and Moose and Kevin, who's, again, like Poison Ivy, a character that would not have existed in these contemporaneous comics as Kevin Keller was not created until 2012, 2011, 2012, somewhere around there. I don't even know if Dilton was around back as far as the 60s. He was, apparently, says Amber. So I I trust Amber's Archie knowledge. Thanks, Amber. But I'm surprised they didn't find a way to work in some Sabrina the Teenage Witch. But that's saved for uh, Betty and Veronica meet Harley and Ivy. That's where Sabrina comes in, which we will cover someday. Well, that's fun. Yeah. Oh, it's a body swap story. Betty and Veronica <laughs> swap bodies with Harley and Ivy and, you know, hijinks ensue. <laughs> Dan Parent who's the artist on this, is one of the quintessential modern age Archie artists. And so this has a very Archie feel to it, yet still finds a way to do a really good job in interpreting the likenesses of the 66 characters into the Archie world. They're still very recognizable as the characters that they are. And recognizable in the fact that it's the Lee Merriweather Catwoman, the one from the movie, who's here. Because, as you mentioned before, she once again uses her alter ego as Miss Kitka. She's lucky Bruce didn't see Miss Kitka. Still, I think the thing in any 66 anything that I laugh at the hardest to this day is from the movie where the Riddler fires off two skywriting missiles with two riddles. What's yellow and rights? And what kind of people are always in a hurry? Well, clearly, Matt, it's a ballpoint banana and Russians. And what can you deduce from this, chum? Hmm. I'm stuck. No, it's going to be that a Russian person is going to slip on a banana peel and break their neck. Yes, the only possible solution (laughs) the whole thing up to that point is ridiculous but when it is the only possible solution god i just love how completely straight everything is played in 66 the most serious thing in the world and respect for how they do it it's what makes the show a classic 
and this this is broader than that, but I'm not sure how much broader. Like I'm trying to think if we would have really gotten the Joker subjecting Batman and Robin to a symbol clanking monkey to make them lose their sanity in 66, or if that's adding a little broader Archie touch to this. And I kind of don't think it is. I think that that is something that we actually could have seen in 66. They wouldn't have been in it long enough to have it affect them. True. And I love that Batman's like, ah, monkey symbol torture. Like it's Monkey symbol torture. It's the worst possible thing. It's like wh- there's waterboarding and then there's monkey symbol torture. That's against the Geneva Convention, Joker. And when you're also getting some deep cuts at the very end when the Archie gang has to distract the Joker and the rest of the United Underworld so they can get to the Batmobile, they're wearing the costumes they wore in the 1960s Archie Super Teens comics where they were superheroes. Again, deep cut Archie lore there. That is deep. Not as deep as some of the, like the man from Riverdale, the spy series from the 60s, or my personal favorite from the the 90s, Jughead's Time Police, where Jughead is a time traveler attempting to put right what once went wrong. Uh, This does not make uh, the Afterlife series sound so bizarre now. No, Archie really embraces the weird every now and then. There was a series in the very late 90s, early 2000s called Archie's Weird Mysteries that was basically Archie meets the X-Files. It was delightfully weird. Come on, Jughead, we have to go look at this cattle mutilation. Yes. And then as the series progressed and the X-Files made its way out, it transitioned to Archie's Mysteries and became more of a CSI riff. I stopped reading it when it stopped being the Supernatural. Like, it was originally the Supernatural, then it became Scooby-Doo-esque, where all the Supernatural stuff turned out to be guys in suits, and then it just became Mysteries. I was like, this isn't what I signed up for. I want Archie <laughs> fighting vampires. I like how even as uh, as teens, uh, Barbara and Dick are still in their colors. Yeah, and Barbara can still pass for a high school student despite having to be at least in her mid to late 20s. I would have loved a little bit of a lampshade on that, like some kind of like 90210 or even... This came out before Riverdale, or there you could have had a Riverdale joke. Since again, all those kids were way older than high school students in Riverdale. She's got a master's degree, at least. She should not be able to pass for a high school student. It's a little bit of never been kissed there. Not knowing the Archie characters, do you feel like you were able to get enough of who each of them were for the series to work? Or did you even feel like you needed to know anything more than what you got? Yeah, you know, you don't spend too much time with any one of them. You get the Jughead stuff pretty quickly. Right. Man likes his burgers. Yeah, I, I thought it was fine. I wasn't I wasn't befuddled or confused. I appreciate that. I'm easily befuddled and or confused. Reggie's a jerk. Archie's a nice guy, but a klutz. And yeah, we didn't even get that much Betty or Veronica. I kind of wish we had gotten a little more, but then there also could have been with Betty's infatuation with Dick Grayson initially, it could have gotten pretty weird when it turned out that they're distantly related somehow. Like that they called that out that, all right, Harriet Cooper, Betty Cooper. There you go. 
Harriet Cooper. If that's the weirdest thing you're getting in your 66, you're you're probably you're doing okay. And hey, she still pulled the gun on Liberace. So good on you, Aunt Harriet. Don't break her heart. Support us on Patreon to listen to us talk about the episode where Liberace plays Butch on Batman 66. Oh, it's so it's so good. It's so good. Someday we will cover the movie and we will cover some of the real, not just completely camp, but like the real classics like Penguin Runs for Mayor or the pilot where the only character who actually dies in a 66. I thought we had already covered Penguin Runs for Mayor. We've covered Penguin Running for Mayor in like three comic stories and Batman Returns. The Penguin has run for mayor of Gotham no less than five times. Batman 66, Batman Returns, Animated Universe, Election Night, and the TV show Gotham. The Penguin keeps running for mayor of Gotham. Well, by God, if you're not right. That he's run for mayor that many times that we haven't covered it. Or both. We haven't, we haven't covered it. Yeah, I thought his, for sure uh, his honor, what dishonor? His honor to uh, penguin, dishonor to penguin. Yeah, yeah, not on the not on the little board. Why should I even? Why would I doubt you, Matt? I'm not 100 percent perfect, just 95. But yeah, I mean, we we get our, our four main villains. We get these other side villains. We get a wild, just fun story. This one more than the others i think embraces the wacky which again comes from the archiness of it that you're not teaming them up with steeden peel or man from uncle that were much less campy much more serious tv series you're teaming them up with something that is inherently comedic but it's written well enough that nowhere does it violate the gravitas of 66 it would have been very easy to lean so heavily into the Archie that it stops feeling like 66, but it never goes quite that far. No. And it totally, there's a lot in common with, you know, Batman and Scooby-Doo, but nothing rises to the level of, we'll say, offensive in terms of not respecting the property. Boy, I could really use an Archie meets Scooby-Doo, just saying. But yeah, Archie is not Scooby-Doo. No. I don't know if I have anything else since I'm, you know, sitting here talking Scoob. Uh, I mean, just a generally charming story uh, of mass hypnosis and plucky teens and Gotham criminals who can get along until the very moment that they can't. And... You got to say, coming up with the idea like, boy, maybe we should try any city that isn't Gotham is not the worst idea. No, it's really not. It's the old joke. Why do all the villains in the Marvel Universe decide to just keep living in New York where 85% of the superheroes are? Go and rob Cleveland. (laughs) Is Boise that bad? I believe that's tough. But Archie meets Batman 66 on the big board. I mean, I think again, we're back up in the, the a little higher than we're higher than Steven Peel. How do we stand with the Legion of Superheroes? So let's do we go above or below Legion? I I think above Legion, because man, Legion's a bunch of shit that I'm just like, whoosh. 
Legion does not do a terribly good job of making it accessible to anyone who isn't a Legion of Superheroes fan. Man from Uncle did better than Legion, but was still had bits and pieces that were a bit much and took a little of the old head scratch to them. I don't think this goes above Green Hornet or Wonder Woman, though. No, I'm I'm pretty happy with Wonder Woman and then Green Hornet. Does this beat Man from Uncle, though? I don't think so. Because Man from Uncle has some like key 66 lore in it, establishing Hugo Strange 66. And there is some good Batman like character stuff in there with how he and Napoleon Solo are kind of butting heads about Batman's no kill rule, which is interesting stuff that we don't often get to see that version of Batman do. That would put this somewhere between Batman 66 at 130 and meets the Legion or uh, meets the man from Uncle at 130 and meets the Legion of Superheroes at 145. And then also of note, we've got Crisis of Infinite Scoobies at 142. It's always hard mixing some of these wacky stories in with some of the more serious stuff. You know, Batman Year 3, post-crisis origin of Jason Todd, first appearance of Anarchy. All that stuff is much more important and weighty, but this is so much fun. Is it more fun than Crisis of Infinite Scoobies? No, (laughs) every version of the Scooby gang showing up in one comic. I think it might go right below Crisis of Infinite Scoobies. All right. New 143. And hey, look, that's another one in the bag. We did it. And now next week, you gums, we're going to be reading stories about the Gatman's most fearsome puppety foe, the ventriloquist and Scarface. And no, we are not going to be substituting every B for a G in that episode. Oh, that's good. That's yeah, no. very good. Again, I, I throw those in for these little stings, like not doing an entire Etrigan episode in rhyme, because that would have, no. I would have quit. But no, we're not doing that. We're just going to do some ventriloquist and Scarface stories. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Tubucks, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sergioli, David Wheel, Alexander Wheel, and Matt McThorne for the McThorney. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at Comics XF, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shout outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you'd like to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at mattlaz 1013 And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at comicsxf.com at comicsxf on Twitter for our weekly Friday Batchat roundup of new bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>